Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door. You can schedule sessions based on what's most convenient for you, and you don't have to wait weeks to be seen. And BuzzFeed Daily listeners can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed. Go to Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed for 65% off your first month. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Cardi B and Pam Badgley are being real weird on Twitter, and we love it. Jamie Lee Curtis and her daughter Ruby opened up about how things have changed since Ruby came out as trans. And we're talking with The Atlantic's Sarah Zhang about DNA donors and the movement trying to change anonymity laws. It's October 21st, 2021. Hey friends, I'm Casey Rackham. And I'm Stephen LeConte. Welcome to BuzzFeed Daily. So it turns out that Cardi B and Penn Badgley are big fans of each other. After a 2019 video of Penn praising Cardi's, quote, authenticity on social media resurfaced, Cardi quote tweeted it saying, and this was in all capitals with a lot of extra letters, <laughs> OMFG, he knows me. And then there was like a billion shocked emojis and then another big OMGGGGG, yo, like I'm famous, famous. This is Cardi's tweet, okay? It seems like Penn was just as surprised by Cardi's reaction as she was by the video because he then quote tweeted her simply saying, I, and then cutting himself off. The pair then changed their profile pics to photos of each other because why not? I think this completely just like melted all of us yesterday because we just had so much fun reading all the tweets. And it, it, I mean, like, just because what a freaking mashup. And then it's like their profile pics. I'm like, oh my God, I love this. And then someone, I saw this amazing tweet that was like, Cardi B needs to be uh, Fran Fine and Penn Badgley needs to be Mr. Sheffield. And I'm like, yes, I need that show. Like in an- <laughs> Like in a nanny oh, reboot. Oh, yeah, we need a nanny reboot. Sorry if you didn't uh, automatically know who Fran Fine <laughs> and Mr. Sheffield are. <laughs> um, okay, honestly, I've heard about this nanny reboot thing with Cardi for a while, and I actually think with Penn Badgley, it could be perfect. Could and be. they're... They seem quite into each other, so I say uh, Netflix, Hulu, HBO, someone... Grab onto this. I need to, and I kind of want to see, after seeing him in You and Gossip Girl, I'm like, yeah, let's give him a comedy. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to see it. It's a pairing I think I never could have imagined, <laughs> but when I see it, it makes perfect sense. It's almost like got like Machine Gun Kelly. I was Megan just going to say, Stephen, same mind here. <laughs> All right. So moving on, in an interview with People magazine, Jamie Lee Curtis and her daughter Ruby talked about the moment Ruby told her parents she's trans. Ruby says it was, quote, scary and intimidating, but that she wasn't worried because they'd been so accepting of her her whole life. Jamie, meanwhile, considers herself a, quote, grateful student and said it's been like speaking a new language, adding, quote, you slow your speech down a little. You become a little more mindful about what you're saying, how you're saying it. You still mess up. I've messed up today twice. We're human. She also said, quote, but if one person reads this, sees a picture of Ruby and me and says, I feel free to say this is who I am, then it's worth it. I mean, Casey, 
my heart. <laughs> it's so sweet. It really is just the best. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for Jamie for, you know, coming forward with this. One thing that I love about the way that Jamie and Ruby have handled this, you know, they broke this story on the cover of AARP magazine, a magazine that is almost exclusively read by elderly people, you know? And so it's reaching a very different audience than if they came out on the cover of Us Weekly or People or whatever, you know? And I just think every time they've come forward to talk about this experience. They've just brought so much humanity, empathy, and grace to the conversation. And I have to imagine it's helping a lot of families that are also going through this. And then I was going to say, people's a good follow-up though, you know, a whole new demographic and crowd. For sure. Look, put it everywhere for (laughs) sure. Exactly. That's it. All the magazine covers. (laughs) I just like that it's going to reach my Nana's kitchen table. Yes, 100%. (laughs) All right. Well, moving on. Today's conversation is all about how babies are made, but not in the way you might be thinking. Uh, Most of us probably know someone who was conceived from either a sperm or egg donation. And if you don't, it turns out that folks who are donor conceived have formed an extremely supportive community. And some of them are now advocating to change the laws surrounding DNA donations. Today, we're talking with the Atlantic Sarah Zhang about the changing landscape of donor conception. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So you wrote a fascinating piece in The Atlantic about the children of sperm and egg donors and the laws regarding donor anonymity. Can you walk us through the broad strokes of your piece for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I've kind of been writing about fertility, sperm donation, egg donation for a few years. And just over the course of my reporting, I just found myself hearing more and more from people who are donor conceived, right? So the children of of sperm donors, the children of egg donors. It occurred to me that this was an identity that they were um, taking on and identity in some cases that they were proud of and that they were talking to each other online and they were organizing. And in particular, they were really trying to change the way we think about sperm donation. And this was so interesting to me because in some ways, like this is an identity. The fact that you could even have this identity to know that your donor conceived is actually fairly new. Because if you go back like 30 or 40 years, if your parents use a sperm donor, your doctor told them to never tell you to keep this a secret because this would be psychologically damaging if the truth ever came out. As it happens, you know, over time, the truth does come out in some cases. And now people are taking DNA tests. So this truth, you know, cannot really be suppressed. And people are actually saying like, well, it's actually worse if you find out when you're 35 or when you're 40, because then you kind of feel like your parents lied to you your whole life. So I think because of DNA, because of this just like changing norms around sperm donation, I'm just really thinking about whether anonymity is okay. And I think the big question for me and the one that like really interested me is we kind of decided when we started doing sperm donation, egg donation, that this biological tie did not matter. We kind of contractually say it does not matter. But some people who are donor conceived really feel like it does. And I wanted to explore that. Yeah, you know, so one of the main figures in your piece is an Australian biologist named Damien Adams, who himself is donor conceived. So Adams' search for his biological father culminated with him successfully lobbying the state of Victoria to retroactively abolish donor anonymity laws. I wonder, was there any kind of backlash from the donor community to that law being changed? Because I can imagine it if you donated sort of under the assumption that you would have anonymity for life, it might be sort of jarring to suddenly have the laws change and realize that like you might be getting a phone call soon. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So actually one of the interesting things that I did not quite get into my story is that among the people who are advocating for the end of anonymity was actually a group of sperm donors, the people who had gone through this process thinking it was going to be anonymous. They called themselves the Mad Men at the time, the Melbourne Anonymous Donors. And they were speaking up saying that they actually wanted to get to know their biological children. Um, you know, of course, like sperm donors are not a monolith. People have different feelings about this. Um, I'm sure there are people who were very upset or surprised to, to realize that this thing that they had done 25, 30 years ago now has a totally different meaning. But it's also the case that if you're someone who wants to keep this a secret, you're probably not like going out and talking to people and giving interviews about it. I get asked the question a lot is that if all sperm donation is no longer anonymous, are we going to just have way fewer donors? And it's actually surprisingly hard to find good numbers on what actually has happened. So as you mentioned, Australia, parts of Australia does no longer has anonymous donation. The United Kingdom actually also got rid of anonymous donation in 2005. And so there have been some reports of there being maybe fewer people who are willing to donate, but maybe that changes over time and it kind of all comes out as a wash. What is true is that the people who are willing to donate are different, right? If, you know, kind of the stereotypical person before who was donating was like someone who was young and just wanted some extra money, like maybe they're thinking about this a little bit harder. They don't want to do that anymore. But if maybe, you know, I've also heard that maybe the sperm donor profile is like people who are a little bit older who like explicitly want to help people to have children, like they're still willing to donate. There is a sperm shortage just kind of like worldwide, but a lot of that also has to do with the fact that the demand for sperm is just a lot higher. Um, you have a lot more single women, a lot more um, lesbian couples going to sperm banks than you were, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. You know, so it turns out that the donor conceived community is very well organized and vocal in its advocacy. In your piece, you cited author Peter Boney, who learned he was donor conceived at age 49, who is advocating for a donor conceived bill of rights. Can you go into some more detail about that? Yeah, yeah. So as you say, Peter found out that he was donor conceived kind of late in life. Um, he actually found out in the 90s, his mother told him when she got very ill and was hospitalized, he realized that this whole thing he believed about his life was entirely untrue. It actually took him about another 20 years to find his biological family or his biological father, who at that point had already passed away. So this happened through a DNA test, right? So he originally found out in the 90s, took him 20 years through a DNA test to find out who he was. And when I spoke to him, like the one thing he kept saying to me is like, I found my biological father. I got to know my half sister that he raised and I, I learned everything I wanted about my donor. But the one thing I really did not get to know is like, how many half siblings do I have? Because in this really unregulated world of uh, sperm donation, like there have been cases where one donor has like over a hundred biological children. And so the donor conceived bill of rights is sort of like getting at some of these questions when talking about like one, you know, limiting the number of siblings or number of uh, children per donor, um, abolishing anonymity entirely. So we just no longer have any more anonymous donation, um, counseling for uh, donors and also for intended parents, just so they are kind of aware and thinking about what's going to happen down the road. Not just like, I'm going to have a baby, but like when this baby is themselves like an adult, what are they going to think? And a right to, to information, medical information about the donor himself. You know, most of the laws that currently exist pertain to either the doctors, the donors, or the patients receiving a donation. But the donor conceived people are mostly left out of consideration, even though their literal existence is the result of these practices. Do you find this debate to be more about legality or is it almost philosophical? <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a legal reporter. But so in some ways, I think I come at this as a human, right? And I think I, I am really interested as a philosophical question. Um, you know, we've been we've been saying um, donor conceived people and we're donor conceived, but I actually find the language really interesting because often you often see donor conceived children, or you talk about the children of sperm donors, and it's interesting because in a lot of cases they aren't children anymore, right? They're adults, but they're kind of like even how we talk about them is kind of like framed in reference to their parents who made the decision for them. So I just think that even this language that we use is kind of like reflective of like how we're thinking about this. And as you say, like, yeah, donor conceived people, like they didn't have a choice in sort of how they were conceived. And now they're kind of fighting for wanting to change the regulations around that. I think it's also an interesting question. Like none of us really have a choice in how we were conceived or even really knowing about the circumstances. In a lot of cases, probably most of us don't want to know exactly what the circumstances are. But, you know, you could say like this is an industry in this case, and this is an industry should have regulation. I do think that there's maybe a parallel actually to adoption. Like the adoption world has also really changed um, in recent decades. You know, there's much less kind of closed adoption where you're doing fully anonymous. There's a lot more open adoption where maybe the birth mother um, gets to know the adoptive parents and you're seeing adoptees, just like donor can see people kind of have a more, more voice in how they want this process to work. All right, we'll be right back with more on donor conception and anonymity with Sarah Zhang. At SheFit, we're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Welcome back. We're talking with the Atlantic Sarah Zhang about donor conception. So one of the ideas in your piece is that the emotional and psychological weight that comes with being donor conceived, you mentioned how as a society, we feel empathy for a child whose parent died. And we also feel empathy for a child whose parent abandoned them. But that same empathy really isn't felt for a child who doesn't know their biological parent because they were conceived via donor. That idea was something that really challenged my own understandings when I was reading it. And I'm curious, Going into the piece, you might have had some preconceptions. Did writing the piece change your view of these issues? So I have been thinking about this a long time. So I don't think writing this specific piece did, but I think over the course of my reporting, I think, yeah, I would agree. You know, I think part of it is also like, uh, you know, when I was younger in my twenties, like I thought of myself as like a child, like, like I was, but now that in my thirties and lots of my friends are becoming parents, like I'm beginning to see things from the point of view of like an adult and a parent rather than a child. And I had found that the framing, as you said, around why do we feel empathy for people whose parents died, but not for someone whose biological parent is a, the egg or sperm donor. I found that really powerful because I think, you know, it, it is kind of in some ways really natural to want to know where your biological origins are. But with sperm donation, we kind of erected this social and artificial barrier, like this wall to say, oh, in this case, it really doesn't matter. Um, and I found talking to, to Damien, who you mentioned earlier, really powerful because he was someone who, as a kid, knew he was donor conceived and didn't really, you know, think that much about it. Was proud of it. It's only becoming a parent himself that made him really rethink 
that connection because he saw his um, infant daughter and just immediately felt this like recognition and resemblance. And I think he really kind of did put his finger on a little bit of incoherence in how we think about the importance of biological connections, because we do say, you know, it's like parenting a child, like being there for them, the lived experience that matters. But we also like when a friend has a baby, like people love to point out, oh, he has his mother's nose and his father's eyes. And maybe they'll have like some of the musical talent. And like in some ways we kind of do want to have it a little bit both ways. So the sort of de facto governing body for donor conception is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which is now just starting to address the debate around the rights of donor-conceived people. And though you mentioned in your piece that fertility is a multi-billion dollar industry that continues to grow every year. So do you get the sense that the ASRM and the rest of the fertility industry might maybe push back against donor-conceived advocacy if it starts to affect their bottom line? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'm really curious to see what happens. So in my piece, I mentioned that the American Society of Reproductive Medicine actually had an annual meeting this week, and there was a panel on Monday that was about open ID donations. And I think the title was something like, what are the children saying? And there were no donor-conceived children or adults <laughs> on the panel. It was, um, I think it was maybe one parent and then maybe four people who worked as either counselors or like uh, nurses within the fertility industry. And so I actually, one thing that happened in between like me asking ASRM about this panel and this panel actually going on is that they actually did reach out to a donor conceived group and they added a video of uh, donor conceived people talking about their own experiences and what they want. So I think, you know, you're starting to see maybe there's a little bit more dialogue. I did bring up the parallel to adoption earlier. I think adoption agencies have also really changed how they work. My colleague Olga Hazan wrote a story about this week as well, kind of separately. But there are many fewer children who are being placed into adoption in the U.S. now, and adoption agencies have started to focus less on kind of trying to place kids in adoption and maybe a little bit more on foster care and making sure like siblings get to stay together. So I think you could see the industry start to change. One of the kind of strange things about this is that things that change now, right? Like it, 30 years ago, the context of sperm donation, and um, it was just very different than it is now. And who knows like how much more things are going to change socially in 30 and 40 years. So it's a difficult thing to say, like exactly, you know, like what should be happening or what will happen. Yeah. And then, you know, there's this whole other game happening at the same time, and that's Ancestry DNA and 23andMe, which you bring up in your piece. And I'm just interested to know how these companies play into this conversation of donor-conceived laws and anonymity. Like, they're basically like, while the ASRM is figuring out their stuff, we've got 23andMe doing their own stuff. And I mean, they're on different wavelengths, but playing in the same like arena. Yeah, right. It's a sort of doesn't really matter if fertility clinics like offer anonymous or non-anonymous donation, right? Because essentially they're all non-anonymous in the age of DNA. You know, as one genetic counselor I spoke to said, like you kind of have to be living under a rock to think that you could be an anonymous sperm donor today at this point. <laughs> yeah. And without any formal regulation, you know, like uh, even the other things we're talking about, like how many offspring a, a donor can have, like if a donor kind of lies about who they are, like all that stuff is going to come out if it's no longer anonymous, right? Like that stuff could only happen because we allow donors to be anonymous. So yeah, like DNA is like completely changing. In some ways, it's sort of like regardless of what the formal regulations are, like DNA has already changed the game. I will say like just for 
in terms of like how important DNA is, how easy it is to like go find a biological parent. In some cases, people really luck out and it's very easy and they get like a direct match, maybe the donor or like a donor's kid and like you kind of find out right away or a first cousin even. But sometimes it can be pretty hard. It's not like everyone's going to take a DNA test and immediately find out who their biological donor is. Well, this is such a fascinating and complex issue. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today to break it all down. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. Come back and join us tomorrow. And remember, we need a nanny reboot starring Cardi B and Penn Badgley. Yes, we do. Be sure to subscribe to BuzzFeed Daily on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to come back for more of what you love about BuzzFeed coming to you daily.